Chapter 57 Mocha is Born I ride an old paint I lead an old den I'm going to Montana To throw the hula hen They feed in the coulee They water in the draw Their tails are all matted Their backs are all raw Right around little doggies Right around them slow For the fiery and snuffy Are raring to go Old Bill Jones had a daughter and a son His son went to college, his daughter went wrong His wife got shot in a pool room fire But still he keeps singing from morning to night Right around little doggies, right around them slow For the fiery and snuff it a raring to go When I die Don't you bury me at all Settle up my pony And lead him from his stall Tie my bones to his back Turn our faces to the west And we'll ride the prairie That we love the best Ride around little doggies Ride around them slow for the fiery and snuff it, a rare to go. It was March, gatherings were completed, and spring was approaching. I am keenly aware of plants, but especially during the spring and early summer. My greenhouse propagation and subsequent plantings were showing maturity, beginning to transform Shadowmere into a memorable and relaxing garden experience. Owen Dell, an instructor at the Santa Barbara Botanical Garden Lectures, helped guide my thoughts as he gave talks and I attended his tours, espousing that to make a truly magnificent garden, one needs to have drifts of similar plants to create a theme. Mass plantings of similar plants generate a composition, causing a person to slow the walk and pause to take in the beauty of the piece. And he advocated one needs more than one plant to make a drift. One plant produces a botanical garden exhibit, but scores of plants create composition, he maintained. That was it. That was how to build a mood, use lots of plants. I'd finally gained a sense of style. Now, as my plantings matured and propagation increased, I was able to create the feel of the gardens that impressed me that I studied and pored over for umpteenth hours. Proper plant selection is essential where we live. There are so many obstacles to growing stuff out there. I needed plants that withstood deer, gophers, the cold, and heat. These were the ones I picked to reproduce in my greenhouse. Soon, I had a handful of bulletproof plants I was successfully propagating into drifts of many samples brought home years earlier. So, I was quite proud sharing my gardens with my extended family and once again looked forward to the Aaron's family reunion on Memorial Day. This was a great weekend to showcase the cool things I'd done. Thirty family members and their friends came together at my place one Memorial Day weekend when Candy Bar was due, and I was hoping the family could experience the birthing of a foal 
alongside the usual holiday excitement. The weekend went great. With the help of the men from the family, we moved the hot tub from its current site to the deck around the pond. Now the old hot tub patio became a place for picnic tables and barbecues. I ordered a specially made tarp from Harp's Tarps in Ohio. It had grommets along the sides and was measured and cut to fit the wood frame roof of my outdoor kitchen. I loved the effect of it. The tarp allowed a subdued, dappled lighting through the waterproof material, creating a comfortable outdoor room, 10 degrees cooler than the surrounding area. Mike and I brought in electricity, placing three fans on the 4x6 rafters. This Memorial Weekend was uneventful compared to previous reunions. At an earlier gathering, when the hot tub was still heated electrically, the brothers decided it wasn't warming quickly enough. One of us, who cannot ever be named, although his name begins with T, thought to run a hose from the water heater in the house kitchen out to the hot tub to speed up the heating process. You know, to squirt extra boiling water right into the hot tub. I never knew you could attach a garden hose to a water heater until that night. Well, during the process, the valve on the water heater broke from too much tugging on the tube, and hot water spewed upward through the kitchen, coalescing on the ceiling. That's where most of the noise came from. The water was hitting the ceiling hard, and then fusing into fat round globules the size of grapes, before dripping on a merry Spanish tile floor. All thoughts of a happy, fun-filled, wine-infused hot tub adventure immediately disintegrated into profuse murmurings of, oh man, what a drag. I'm sorry. Otherwise, there was a quiet and attentive mopping up. For a long time following that reunion, the family thought Mary was a bit tense. Later that evening, or weekend, the hot tub was deemed usable. I remember because I thought Mike drowned in it. It was daytime just after a big breakfast, and I went out to see if any plates were left out. Then I saw it. Someone's head was face down in the water, the tub bubbles were gently percolating, and the dark hairs just waved as they floated about the head. Realizing it must be Mike, I reached down, grabbed his hair, and quickly pulled up his head. What are you doing? I yelled at him as he opened his eyes and dropped his mouth in surprise. I was trying to get rid of hiccups. You could have ruined the whole weekend, I exclaimed as I let go of his hair. Thankfully, we didn't have to bury one of the brothers that weekend. At another reunion, Dad and his wife came down in a motorhome, with their two Samoyed husky Malamute hates any other thing walking on four legs pets with them. As soon as they pulled into our yard, Dad opened the door to allow everyone out of the motorhome. The evil dogs ambushed one of Mary's dogs, and a snarling, barking dogfight ensued, while Dad and Mary separated snarling animals from hapless ones. And I was caught up in the mayhem. You have to stop jumping into dogfights, I told Mary, because that means I have to jump in and save you. After these first reunions, I made sure to approach Mary about her tolerance level for each subsequent meeting. Maybe it was after this time the family thought Mary was tense. I can't remember exactly. And Candy Bar didn't like my family either. Thinking they were drunkards and hooligans, she withheld having her baby. Evidently, she was as dismayed with the company as Mary. There was no foal anywhere come Monday morning, and Mama was now big as a box. She was ready to deliver but nothing happened during the memorial weekend. The final guests left late Monday without seeing Candy Bar have her foal. Tuesday morning when I went out to feed her, Candy Bar had a foal suckling her. Mary and I immediately checked it out. As with any first newborn child, we bought books to help us rear an offspring, one who would be confident with people from the very beginning. We lavished much time and attention on Mocha, and the efforts paid off. 
the growing horse was comfortable around us right away. In his book, From Birth to Backing, Richard Maxwell succinctly outlined the ideas to strive for when taming a foal. A foal is born effectively as a wild animal, with all the instincts it needs to survive still unharmed. If the foal is destined for life as a working, domestic animal, those instincts need to be controlled, but they must always be respected. The better he is trained to accept the daily demands placed on him, the more he will enjoy the company of humans. Each horse can suppress his wild instincts to a different level. Some become bomb-proof. Others will remain hypersensitive to their environment. If you know your horse's optimum level of sensitivity, you will find it easier to judge his behavior and to react accordingly. You will know if it is best to praise or discipline him, push him farther or back off. Be sympathetic without being soft. Interpret the signs your horse is giving you and act on them. A good first impression that earns the foal's respect without adversely affecting his confidence will set a good foundation for a lifetime of training. This was just the type of training we were looking for. A confident horse can become bomb-proof, and we were determined to raise Mocha similarly. The entire family spent daily time with Mama and Baby, bringing her around to where the people were. Early on, I fitted her with a halter. I took a lead rope, hooked it onto the right side of the halter, and ran it under her tail around her butt. Standing to the left of the head, I tugged the line, and after enough times, the horse realized to move forward just by my tugging at her halter. Candy Bar herself helped us teach the foal to follow a tug. As soon as Mama moved a few feet away, the baby hurried to be close. By pulling on the rope during those times, Mocha tended towards Mom. She learned to move forward when she felt the line tighten. And Mocha was regularly handled up close and personal. That's the fun part. The careful loving. I stroked her head and body, patted her on the back, and hugged her belly in a bear hug. Then I draped myself over her, snuggling my arms into a catch around her chest. So when it came time to mount a saddle, she'd be accustomed to having this heaviness placed on her back. Daily, I lifted each leg up, using the hoof knife to scrape any rocks or dirt from the bottom of the foot. I was always moving around the foal, getting her accustomed to my closeness and touch, stroking her head, her ears, and grabbing her lips. Mocha was a quick learner. The fact that horses were domesticated 5,000 years ago causes one to realize humans have been raising these animals for over 500 generations, and animals from each generation were picked out to rebreed, if they had the characteristics desirable to meet the needs of their owners. This situation is in contrast to the domestication or the inability to domesticate the zebra. I've heard stories of captive zebras attacking people, biting and kicking them, and have never heard of anyone safely riding one. In his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond points out that zebras, unpredictable nature and tendency to attack, preclude them from being good candidates for domestication. Now comes the ongoing argument similar to the chicken versus the egg theory. Here's the first scenario. Zebras might have genes in them allowing their domestication, if only someone had caught a few 5,000 years ago and they had been rebred 500 times since. My answer? Probably not. Both zebras and horses evolved from a common, shorter ancestor, and therefore must share lots of similar genes. Other people believe the zebra's inherent wildness made them too dangerous to catch and contain, even the first time many thousand years ago. Here's why. A later domestication was tried in the 1850s on zebras using scientific methods when European colonists in Africa began using established equine breeding programs in use at that time. 
They abandoned the study because the zebra's initial and inherent wildness made it unable to domesticate. And backward thinking brings us back to that conclusion too. If Africans had indeed tried to domesticate zebras thousands of years ago, their immediate need for a work animal did not allow them the time to wait for many years or generations for a possible domestication product to become more evident. More confusion arises when one is claimed to have tamed an animal. There is a difference between taming a beast and domesticating one. An ostrich can be tamed to pull a cart, but also has its wildness simmering under the surface. Mr. Chips was a male ostrich Mary was quite fond of because he was comfortable with her closeness. But that was before his prepubescent genes pushed out their call of the wild, sending badass male hormones coursing through the dude's veins, turning him from peaches and cream to King Kong. We received Mr. Chips when he was only a month old. He never challenged Mary when she went into his pen to pour the ostrich food into the feeder, and she became comfortable with him. She even took him to fairs around the state to advertise our farm. He was docile and friendly until he became a breeding age, about one year old. And as the breeding season began, behaviorally aggressive hormones pushed him to abnormal aggressive behaviors. Mary opened the gate to the pen and was carrying a 50-pound sack of feed to the rotating feeder when Chips trotted over to her with his chest forward. He bumped into Mary hard enough to cause her to fall. She dropped to her knees, facing away from him, the seed sack splayed open on the ground. Still down, Mary started to get up. Pushing on her palms to lift her back and head and shoulder up, the stupid bird came over and kicked her down, forcing her into a fetal position. Screaming for help, she wormed her way towards the feeder when he was momentarily distracted. Gary heard the cries and was the first to find Mary. She'd somehow managed to crawl under the feeder when she saw craziness come over the bird. She said he had a glassy look in his eyes, which was new as he was calm and inquisitive before this episode. Bruised from being kicked across the back of the legs and back, Mary crawled to safety by inserting herself between the three legs of the feeder. Soon, the dinosaur descendant lost interest and wandered away, allowing Gary to get her out. I agree with Mr. Diamond. An animal's genetics dictate whether or not it can be domesticated. However, once a species is domesticated, we humans need to be on constant alert for genetic throwbacks, where an individual animal has been born with more wildness than domestication. Some are prone to the destructive resurgence of their naturally violent tendencies which occurred in the incident where a woman in Creston died while working her beloved stallion. She had her throat pulled apart when the animal decided he no longer wanted to listen to her commands. A similar thing happened to me when I was breeding a stallion and mare using natural cover instead of artificial insemination. I left her in the middle of the pen and retrieved the stud. Snapping the lead rope on the stud's halter, I brought him into the enclosure where the female was standing. She was receptive that day, flagging her tail tall and straight, as soon as she got a visual and olfactory sense of the stallion coming her way. As the tail was waving him over, the mare set out her open-for-business stance, widening her legs, her urethra winking, and spitting streams of piss for more attention, letting him know she indeed was ready for mounting. I walked the stallion into the paddock, still with only the lead rope snapped to the halter. As soon as he saw and smelled the mare, he whinnied. Immediately his penis grew large and mighty swelling to the size of a bat, unabashedly bobbing here and there. Looking for one thing, bouncing up and down. Yes, yes. I'm ready. Sniffing her butt, he mounted her and then slid off. That was just a setup. Walking directly behind his gal, the stud stood on his hind legs, and moving towards her, 
he settled his front legs onto her back. Soon his penis found the vagina, and breeding began. I was still holding his lead rope and moved to adjust. When I pulled on the lead, I irritated the stallion, and he took me out. Maintaining his stance, hardly missing a thrust, the horse lifted his right rear leg and struck me in the head with his hoof. The blow knocked me down and sent me flying until my head hit the fence post. I wandered too near the stallion, letting my guard down, foolishly leaving myself open to the ravages of the thing whose wildness resurfaced. End of chapter. Thank you for listening. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site Spotify. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.